Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to The Savage Nation podcast. On today's edition, we are speaking with Adam Bellow, unto himself a very famous editor, but what is interesting to me is how it was like growing up Bellow. His father was Saul Bellow, a giant in English literature, who was awarded the Pulitzer Prize, the Nobel Prize for Literature, and the National Medal of Arts. The only writer to win the National Book Award for Fiction three times, and on and on. In the words of the Swedish Nobel Committee, Saul Bellow's writing showed the mixture of rich, picaresque novel and subtle analysis of our culture of entertaining adventure, drastic and tragic episodes in quick succession, interspersed with philosophic conversation, all developed by a commentator with a witty tongue and penetrating insight into the outer and inner complications that drive us to act or prevent us from acting, and that can be called a dilemma of our age, unquote. I would say that today Saul Bellow could not be published. His best-known novels are probably not even known by most of the people in this country today. Forget the fact that they're illiterate, that they live on social media. They are so brainwashed, they wouldn't know what good literature is. His novels include The Adventures of Augie March, Henderson the Rain King, Herzog, Mr. Samler's Planet, one of my favorites, Seize the Day, Humboldt's Gift, and Ravelstein a very important author of 20th century American literature. That was Saul Bellow, the father of the gentleman who we are interviewing today on the Savage Nation podcast, Mr. Adam Bellow, who will talk with us about publishing in today's hyper-political world. Now, Adam Bellow is a man who distinguished himself as an editor who focused on conservative authors. Can you imagine that? Hmm, we'll talk about that. Can a conservative author get published in New York City anymore? We'll find out about that as well. We'll find out more about these questions and others right here on the Savage Nation podcast. Michael Savage, a host like no other. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. All right. Well, Adam Bellow, 
I would say that although your dad, your father, Saul Bellow, and I'm not going to talk about your father because if someone did that about me, I'd hang right up. Because you are a personage in your own right, which is why we're talking today. But I think I would be remiss if I thought that everyone knew who your father was. We live in such an illiterate age, <laughs> or I almost feel like saying an illiterate age, that if I said Saul Bellow to people who are studying Aztec gods right now in school and how to worship, how to sacrifice people on the altar instead of Passover and Easter, they wouldn't know that Saul Bellow won the Nobel Prize for Literature, the Pulitzer Prize, the National Medal of Arts, and so on. And that leads me to the first question, Adam. You are uh, an editor of, uh, can I say, conservative-oriented books? Would that be fair? Oh, sure. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid to even say the word conservative. I have to whisper it (laughs) underneath. Yeah, but... So, but you were at, at a major publishing house doing conservative authors, including who were some of the big authors that you, you edited? So I've been in the business for 35 years. Um, I came to my conservative views uh, through uh, really uh, through education. Um, and I was uh, the most decisive influence uh, influences on me were my father. Who, who you're correct in in saying is uh, was a you know assuming was a major major influence on me, and his very good friend Alan Bloom, um, with whom I studied and who was a friend of the family. Uh, so I ended up in publishing by a long circuitous route. We don't have to get into it now. Um, and uh, I started in publishing in uh, 1988, um, one year before the end of the Cold War, and. Um, uh, you know, when we came, when I came into publishing, the Cold War was the was a sort of a, a stable backdrop, uh, like a, a reference point for everything that we did, uh, every book that we published on on current affairs, global issues, economics, and I published a lot of of books by academics, social scientists, um, uh, philosophers, and so forth. And um, my first, uh, and my job, as my boss uh, explained to me, so my boss was the person who signed up Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind, for Simon and Schuster. Um, and, uh, and when that book was published in, um, when I was still in graduate school, it gave me uh, an idea, an inkling of what you could accomplish by publishing a book. Hmm. Uh, you know, Alan Bloom started a massive you know, not just national, but international controversy. Um, he With was, what? With uh, what? So his, uh, his, so Alan Bloom was, um, uh, it, it's actually useful to talk about uh, whether or not Bloom was a conservative. Um, because it, we, it, Adam, before we do, for the average listener, and they're very intelligent, but they may not know who Alan Bloom was, mm-hmm. but you published Norman Podhoritz, Irving Crystal. You, cu- you published David Horowitz. Victor Davis Hanson, when they were hardly known, right? Yes, I, you know my first bestseller was Dinesh D'Souza's uh, *Illiberal Education*. Good. Okay. Um, uh, I followed that up with a book by David Brock, who was then a conservative, called *The Real Anita Hill*, mm-hmm. which was um, uh, you know a book that outraged everybody um, within a you know at least within a five mile radius of where I live, um, and. Um, uh, and then uh, subsequently, I published a book called The Bell Curve. Oh, The Bell Curve, that there by, by Charles Murray and Richard Hernstein. That's right. And this that was dared the, say there was a difference in IQ amongst uh, different ethnic groups? Uh, they were simply reporting uh, the facts. Um, oh, uh, wait a minute. Stop that. 
you're, <laughs> you're agreeing that there is a bell curve of IQ amongst different ethnic groups? It's a statistical phenomenon. Um, it doesn't, you know, the, the, what, of course, what, what, what Charles uh, will tell you is that, uh, is that aggregate uh, group measures don't say anything about individuals. Um, uh, any, any individual can fall anywhere, any place uh, along the bell curve. Um, but uh, you, for example, are far out on the, on the right wing of the, of the, <laughs> of, of the curve. Where 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 you belong, <laughs> I would say, um, on the curb. <laughs> your your father, going back to to Saul Bellow, said something about um, other uh, societies and their books. Where, how did he say he's waiting for the Zulu something the, or the other? Tolstoy of the Zulu <laughs> no, and, the, and the Proust of the Papuans. Oh God! He, he well, was, he your was father could have been published good. today. Could he? He, he would have been outed as. Um, Unpublishable. Well, if Pepe Le Pew can't uh, can't uh, be be shown to uh, to children, I don't know how um, my father could be published. And more to the point, right now, you know, Philip Roth, who was a friend of the family, someone I knew, another great writer, well for many years. So Philip's biography has just come out, and he's being pounded, of course, by you know for his uh, treatment of women, um, which, by the way, I can attest was not very good. Um, well, they but, were giants. When, when I, I've got to say to my audience that when I was young, your father uh, and the gentleman you just mentioned, they were the gods of literature. They were the giants and their books were so ponderous and large. Mm -hmm. The scope of the books, they were not slim novels. They were grand novels of the of the uh, old style, weren't they? Well, that's what novels were. You know, when I was young, you're absolutely right. When I was young and growing up, um, to be a novelist was considered the highest, you know, vocation in culture. It was that's right? Uh, it was to be. It was to be serious. It meant that you were truly serious. And a novel, a great novel. If you won the Nobel Prize, you won it because your novels um, took in the whole of the human condition uh, in the way that ep you know epic poems used to do. Uh, and that's what I thought literature was about. Uh, and also the, the other thing that I grew up with that I, that I thought would continue forever uh, is that a high-level conversation was going on mm -hmm. among, amongst these people, these individuals, uh, who were all uh, at the summit of, of civilization and who were, who were very deeply engaged with important questions, major questions about the, the, the future of Western civilization, the struggle for, for freedom. Uh, the 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 fate of the Jews, for one thing, because many of them were Jewish. Uh, these were very well, big. Well, questions. Let's let's talk about Jewish for a minute. This is very important. Saul Bellow, uh, immigrant from Russian Jewish parents, your grandparents. Mm -hmm. you're, you're actually, interestingly enough, you are an immigrant's son. You, your father was an immigrant, wasn't he? He was an immigrant, and he was an illegal immigrant into the, oh. <laughs> into the United States. But Jew uh, Jewish writers in the 50s were considered extremely au courant, so to speak. They were looked up to. They were revered. We're talking about your father. We're talking about f even Philip Roth, if you want to put him in the same category, which I don't know that you would agree to that. But they were the gods. Now, then we had Norman Mailer was a big name in the 50s. Did you know Norman Mailer, by the way, as a side note? 
I did know Norman, um, uh, and I knew um, Bernard Malamud. I knew uh, other writer friends of my father's, like John Cheever and Robert Penn Warren. Hmm. Um, I got to meet uh, extraordinary individuals like Cheslov Milos and Andrei Sinyavsky. Um, Sinyavsky was a Russian writer who had been uh, imprisoned in the Gulag for hmm. writing subversive books. Come and when on. I met him, uh, after he'd been released, I saw that his fingers had been broken with hammers. Oh, my God. They hammered his fingers. Oh, my God. We don't have any idea what goes on in this world. You can't, you, you can't imagine. We can't imagine it because if someone says the wrong word, they break into tears and call the police on the campuses today yeah. and call that a, a hate crime. But I want to talk about cultural conservatism. And, again, you and your father in some ways wound up in the same place. And I wouldn't say that your opponents include feminism, but would I be accurate in saying your opponents include postmodernism? I have, yes. Yeah, so I am, I am, a, I am a book editor um, who operates in a commercial context, which means that I have to sell books. Uh, and so it's a, it's a, it's a balance between various factors. And uh, so, but my my stock in trade has always been. That I, I have a I'm a mission driven publisher. I'm somebody who uh, who gets up in the morning and tries to figure out how best to to uh, to defend Western civilizational values and attack their enemies. But why is Western civilization under assault when it gave the world 99 percent of the, the world we're living in, the modern world we're living in, the inventions, the airplane to air conditioning? Where is this coming from, Adam? <laughs> Well, you know, I since, as I mentioned, you know, my first best-selling book was Dinesh D'Souza's Illiberal Education, which was a report on the uh, the controversies in un American universities back in the in the eighties and nineties about uh, exactly this question: uh, the uh, the overrepresentation of dead white males, European males, in the in the traditional uh, curriculum, the demand for greater representation of minority viewpoints, for for more faculty hiring for special studies programs based on identity. Um, all of this was happening. In, and and uh, and of course there was postmodern intellectualism. So all of these, which derives from a kind of uh, amalgam of Marx and Freud, and all of these currents were uh, clearly corrosive uh, and hostile to the ruling, uh, what was considered to be the the, the ruling white male patriarchal uh, intellectual paradigm. And there was it was clearly uh, you know uh, um, uh, to me it was a it, it seemed to be an extension of Marxism and and what you would call anti-colonial uh, studies. So uh, what happened, what, what, what I saw happening was that a common cause, there were all these groups, individual grievance, identity groups and grievance groups that arose in the, in the, in the 80s and 90s, particularly in the period of, you remember the end of history? Remember when history ended? Yep. Uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book called The End of History. Oh, yes. Yeah. After communism fell, it was it was thought for a brief moment that liberal uh, liberal values had triumphed. And as conservatives, I'm sure you would agree that we are, in fact, liberals. We are the defenders. We're the last defenders of you. Of, you mean the conservatives of today are actually liberals of our society? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, well, we're certainly uh, certainly more open minded than the, those on the left who want to shut us down, push us out throw us out mm -hmm. and and here we are okay let's pause for a minute you're listening to my discussion with the distinguished conservative book editor adam bell i'll be back in a moment 
the Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. We're back, so let's return to my discussion with Adam Bello. But I want to go back to you, Adam, for a minute. It's very important people know who we're speaking with. Which major publishing house were you last with before the current house? So I have worked at most of the big houses in New York City. I, I started out at um, uh, the Free Press, which was then part of Macmillan. Uh, wow. We were then merged with Simon & Schuster. I worked at Simon & Schuster, uh, where I was editorial director of the Free Press. Um, then I moved to uh, Doubleday, which is part of Random House. Mm. Then, then I moved to HarperCollins, which, mm. is, part of, which is part of the, the, the Fox empire. Yeah. Uh, ran an imprint there. Then I moved to St. Martin's Press, which is part wow. of Macmillan. I remember. Um, and I, I, I averaged about, you know, eight or nine years in each of these jobs. Um, You've so been at this a very long time. I've been at this a long time, and I've seen a lot of changes. A so lot of what things would, have changed. Let, let's make this pragmatic for a moment, because I have a million questions going on. You know, I'm reminded of Henry Miller saying, each day when I wake up, a, th- a thousand roads open before me. Mm-hmm. And with you, a thousand ideas are opening before me with every <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Someone who's listening to this podcast says, okay, I've listened to this. It's very interesting. How do I get a book published today if I'm a conservative? Where would they go? Well, that's an excellent question. So let's, so let's talk about the status of, the state of, uh, the status of conservatives in, in book publishing today. So when I started out in, in, in the business, I mean, I've spent my career in the mainstream commercial uh, publishing business. These are all the houses I've named were large-scale publishing houses. They publish hundreds and hundreds of books every year of every kind. When I started out in the business, conservatives were not really represented uh, in publishing. There was there were one or two people in publishing like me who who would publish conservative books, but very very few. There was a change in the late 90s after the emergence of a kind of a mass market for conservative, a mass media market created by Rush Limbaugh, by Fox News, uh, talk radio, cable TV, and the Internet. How about Michael Savage? Did he have anything to do with it? Michael Savage completely had something to do with it. And it was a and there was a there was a great uh, flowering of conservative speech in those days. And it was extremely exciting to be a book publisher in those times. And what happened was that the big houses decided there was money in conservative books, and they created a number of specialized imprints for for conservatives. And I ran several of these. I had colleagues at other houses who who ran these imprints. Did you know uh, know my editor, who, uh, Kate, Kate Hartson? Yes, Kate, Kate was, uh, uh, Kate was somebody I like and respect. She's uh, a lovely like, woman. I Can I say what happened to her recently? After all may- these best-selling books, not only with me but with others, they actually fired her because they wouldn't publish conservative authors anymore over at her uh, her her imprint. Well, you know, Michael, it was really not about being conservative. It was it was about Donald Trump. Huh. It was about anyone who had come out of the Trump administration uh, or who had anything positive to say about Donald Trump, uh, because Trump was so toxic mm. that to the liberals that after 30 years of publishing conservative books, many of them, as I've indicated, incredibly controversial. And I bought on many others, too. I published Sarah Palin, for example. Another I published her memoir and two other books. Uh, so, I mean, I've, I've published the, published these, and Donald Rumsfeld, I've published very polarizing people mm. throughout my career, but Donald Trump broke their <laughs> brains. <laughs> he their, did. 
they, he did. They just was, went nuts. Trump derangement syndrome is actually true. But, but but what was added to that something that you that you that you wouldn't have no, noticed if you didn't work in the publishing business is that in the last 20 years or so the publishing companies like other big media companies have hired a lot of young people mm-hmm. from liberal, from liberal arts institutions and yep. you know what they've been taught in yep. those institutions and they treat now they treat the publishing houses and the media companies where they work like an extension of the campus yes. where where protest is part of the curriculum Oh, my God. Because they're so they protested. We don't want anything to do with conservatives like Trump. Anyone who who Kate Hartson uh, published, even though it was a bestseller, made us a fortune. We're purging her. We're pushing her out into the gulag. Yep. But Adam Bello, you left major publishing houses. You are now with a smaller company, right? Yes, I left um, about uh, just over uh, in uh, at the end of of 2019 because I saw what was coming. Mm. And um, and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to function in the way that I had because when I was working at St. Martin's Press, which is, by the way, a, a very distinguished place with run by lovely people who I like and respect. But every time they hired me uh, in 2016 and every time I would bring in a, a project of the kind that I'm known for doing, like, a, for example, Charles Murray had another book. Mm. Um, that he wanted to publish. And I got very excited. I'm like, Charles Murray, this will be great. You know, mm. I can't wait. Um, and they would take it up the, run it up the chain and the answer would come down. No, we, we don't, you know, we don't need, we don't really need that. We don't, we're not, we don't want any controversy. So we're no longer a commercial publishing house looking for a a market. We are an ideological publishing house looking to establish our viewpoints is what they become. What I would say is I would amend that slightly to say that, that you're a, you're a publishing house run by cowards who, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who are afraid to stand up for their own liberal principles. Oh, you're uh, more brave than I am. Well, I don't owe, I don't owe anything to these people. Uh, but you're in, a, you're in a small house. Who, who are you? You're with a small company now, a, start, a startup? So here's the story. So I have, a, a, I, you know, as I said, there were other conservative editors in publishing who were friends of mine. One of them was a, a guy named Anthony Zaccardi, who worked at Simon & Schuster for many years mm-hmm. and, and published conservatives like Laura Ingram um, and uh, James O'Keefe and uh, I think Glenn Beck at one point. And my friend Anthony decided at about 10 or 12 years ago, decided to go out on his own and he created his own publishing company. And he built it up to be a quite lively and successful enterprise. And he kept saying to me, you know, I'm having, you should join me. I'm having so much fun. Um, You wouldn't believe it. And you know, what's great about it is that I can say yes. I don't have to, there's nobody over sitting over my head. There are no business managers or salespeople or publicity people or, or, or cowardly uh, uh, corporate managers to tell me no. And so we're having a great time and you should join us. And so I decided that I would finally, I'm not an impulsive person. <laughs> I've spent, you know, I've spent, you know, over three decades working, you know, working at various companies, spending a long time in each place, you know, making myself part of the, you know, being charming and uh, friendly because mm-hmm. uh, you as a conservative, you have to work extra hard to be charming mm-hmm. uh, because they don't regard you as a human being. You know, they, they, they simply they simply can't understand how you could possibly think these things. And now, they you come, grew up in as a liberal, didn't you? Wouldn't you say as the Upper West Side liberal guy? Absolutely. I'm, I grew up in the 60s. I'm you know, I, I, I I've you know, I was um, 
very much influenced, like everybody else in my environment, by the liberal, uh, by the liberalism of the 60s, which I found to be very appealing, to be honest. Oh, so did I. I remember I was an ethnobotanist. I fit right in, so I thought. Yeah. But your, the article about you that you wrote in 2004, my escape from the Zabar's left for New York Mag is hilariously funny. And I, I'm not going to paraphrase it because it's well written because you wrote it. August 20th, 2004, Adam Bello, my escape from the Zabar's left. For people who don't know who Zabar's is or what Zabar's is, it's an upscale, um, what, is deli market with the most yeah. uh, uh, wonderful things from around the world. But it's extremely it's elite. It's an elitist yeah, grocery it's a, chain. It's, it's a Jewish deli. And <laughs> no, it isn't. Yeah. I mean, they have stuff that costs a fortune, right? Oh, yes, and, yes. But it started out when I went, when I went, when, when, when I moved into New York City in 19... 19- 69 and we went to Zabar's there will pick there were pickle barrels on the out on the sidewalk oh, really yeah um, I mean it was a it, it was a kind of a Lower East Side style you know Jewish appetizing store it, it was more like Katz's than it is like Zabar's today yeah, yeah. and uh, or Russ and Daughters you know um, my strange and event, eventful journey from Upper West Side liberal to neoconservative culture warrior. And you talk about your teenage daughter in 04, who was very uncomfortable with you. I, I'm, I'm loath to ask you where you are today with your daughter because well, things could not have gotten better. No, she's still she's still a little un, a little uncomfortable. I mean, certainly the you know, we've we've had some we've had some difficult conversations over the years. Mm. Um, you're still talking. Yes, well, you know, where she lives nearby, she's married, she has a couple of couple of little kids. I have two little adorable grandsons. Do they uh, know that you're a conservative, the grandsons? Do you have the, to, the do, you have to wear, do you have to wear a shame hat when you come in the house? <laughs> no, no, I do not. Um, but it is I will say that, you know, being a conservative on the Upper West Side and in New York City and in publishing has been, you know, challenging. Uh, and I've, I've, as I said before, I've had to be, you know, I've had to be extra charming in order to, <laughs> in addition to my natural charm, uh, in order extra to be allowed charm. to get away with it, you know. Um, you become extra charming. I've got to work on that. It's work. <laughs> now, you say my education in liberal parochi- parochialism continued during the Reagan years, and Reagan's election in 80 was a seismic shock to liberals. And for a long time, you shared the prevailing view that the president was adult and a simpleton. But then you found that he wasn't. And then you shared his anti-communism and approved of his opposition to Soviet moves in Central America. And so having grown up in a liberal counterculture, as I did, I grew up in the same thing, Adam. I mean, I'm a little older than you, I think. And I became what you might call more than a conservative. Some would call me something else. I had, <laughs> I had an Italian friend here in San Francisco who owned an Italian restaurant that Pelosi would go to and everyone else. And I would say, how did they come here knowing you're a conservative? And he would say, I'm a, not a conservative. I'm a fascist. And they know it. But I, wouldn't, <laughs> I loved Lorenzo. He passed away a number of years ago. But I would not say that I am that. That's what they would say about me. But to me, the fascists today are the left. To me, a fascist uses, exerts power to control their opponents that's what fascism derives from the word stick the roman stick fascia i keep telling people that if antifa are not fascists tell me what is they are classically the fascists of today one of my one of the one of the books i published that that is my one perhaps one of my favorite books of 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 all time that i've published was uh was a book called liberal fascism oh uh, yes by jonah who wrote that 
Jonah Goldberg. And, Interesting. You know, we signed it up based on this is a, a great example of of the power of a of a good of a good title in publishing. Mm. We signed mm-hmm. that book up basically on the strength of the title alone because yeah. the phrase liberal fascism is a is like a Zen Cohen that causes liberal heads to explode. <laughs> Uh, in fact, literally explode. Uh, Jonah was on John Stewart, the, uh, the Daily, got him on the Daily Show, and to talk about the book. And the jacket had was illustrated with a smiley face that had a Hitler mustache, which oh, is to, right to sort of illustrate what is sometimes said that when fascism. But Jonah became an anti-Trumper, didn't he? Jonah, Jonah is of a, is of the anti-Trump strain. But uh, really, he was a pr- pretty vehement anti-Trumper. I never, I never liked the guy. I never liked this politics, but that's that's irrelevant. What you're listening to is a unique interview with the distinguished conservative editor, Adam Bellow, son of the great American and Nobel Prize winning novelist, Saul Bellow. We'll have more in just a second. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered and raw. Now, let's return to my discussion with the distinguished editor, Adam Bellow. I want to go back to you, most importantly, Adam Bellow. So you're working with, what's the name of your publishing company today? So today I, I publish books in partnership with, uh, well, let me put it this way. I am the co-publisher of a, of a line of books called Bombardier, mm-hmm. Bombardier Books, which is an imprint uh, of Post Hill Press. And Post Hill has a number of imprints, in addition to which I have a Jewish imprint uh, which is a pro-Israel and Zionist-inspired uh, imprint, which is Brave called, of you. Which is called Wicked Sun, and the owner of Post Hill Press is my friend uh, Anthony Zaccardi. Oh, the same gentleman. Okay. Right. And so, what is great about this is that, first of all, I get to work with friends, uh, people who are ideologically aligned I, with me. I envy you. I work alone here in isolation in, in Gehenna. You have to to have freedom. This is the this is what it comes down to. Freedom is slavery, Adam. Well, I'm joking, I'll tell you, that's a parody. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, but I'll tell you what though. I I felt enslaved when I was working for these one for these big companies. I had a big salary. I had a tra- I had a T and E budget. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I had uh, I had assistants, associates, editors. I had teams of people who worked for me, and I had almost no freedom. Why? Oh, you had to report to the corporate hierarchy? Yeah, because other people decided what I was going to be allowed oh. to publish. And it was a lot but, of work. But you were, you were known as the editor to get to edit books. I mean, as near as when you were with the huge houses. If I said I was being published by, by HarperCollins, or at the time, St. Martin's published some stuff that I had done, they said to me, someone who wanted to make me feel bad said, Did, is Adam Bellow your editor? Nah. I said, no, I not really, you know, but I, I was I was upset that Adam Bellow was not the editor. But having made it a little personal, I should say that at, just so people understand, this is not a promotion for anything I've written. But Adam and I met through my agent, Ian Kleiner, a few years ago, and Adam became interested in some of the stuff I was doing. Then COVID hit. You know what I have in my hand? You'll never believe this. I have Adam Bellow's response from July 30th, 2019 to Ian Kleiner. And you were in Holland at the time to my little novella called Xenon, my little mm-hmm. tiny story, Xenon, which is on on Kindle. I was so amazed that you of your stature would say things uh, that you wrote about. And the one line I want to read, it's extreme spareness combined with its cunning manipulation of the reader's expectations of normalcy. Place it in the category of the mind bending political fables produced by writers of the Soviet era. 
There is a scene in one of Andre Sinyavesky's books where the secret police burst into a writer's apartment, sweep the letters off the page he has been writing onto the table, and then in a tidy little envelope uh, and before leaving. This kind of surrealism is an appropriate response to a society where truth and meaning have been twisted into lies for political ends. When I wrote Zeon in the early 1980s, I, w- I was at almost at the point of losing my mind from what was going on. I was, things had gone on in my life. I was spending a lot of time wandering alone, talking to myself in malls. I remember where I wrote this book. It was at a mall, regular mall, an outdoor mall with people walking around buying meaningless garbage. I sometimes go there, Adam, and the same meaningless stuff is going on, the same empty storefronts. And I said, you wrote Zine on here. Has anything changed? It, it, it's gotten worse. If anything, there's more alienation, more isolation. I'm more of a man without a country today than I was in the 1980s. And that's after 26 years as a, a leader in, 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 in radio and, you know, some best-selling books. I feel more lost and alone in this society today than I did then. Would you believe that, Adam? I do, because I share your feelings. And, and the fact is that as conservatives, you know, as I said before, I, I, I saw this postmodern, you know, uh, identity politics, uh, you know, Stalinist you know, phenomenon, uh, this wave coming a long way off. And I've been publishing books for many, many years that tried to sound the alarm and get people to pay attention to it. And, you know, of course, uh, some people did, but most people did not. And now we're facing a situation where we are, we are under the most vicious attack that I've ever seen in my lifetime. I mean, really, if, if, if my father were alive or any of his friends who lived during the, during the 30s, and the you know during the during the McCarthy era, um, uh, if they saw what was going on today, they would say this is this is a, a whole new order of viciousness. The left is going for our throats. And so, to come back to the question that you asked me at the beginning, what would a conservative do today? The answer is you won't get a you you're being driven out of the of the public square of ideas. You're being you're being silenced. You're being disarmed. You're being shut down. You're being criminalized. Uh, and you know, you better, you, you know, you better not give up your guns. But it happened to me in radio. Adam, this is very important that people understand this. I'm only doing podcasts now. I'm no longer on the radio. I had a huge show and slowly as that corporation that ran these conservative hosts, quote unquote, took over by liberals, just like the publishing company, they try to edge me out. They used every excuse under the sun. And I, I stuck it out as long as I could. And here I am. I mean, I would not do a, a three-hour show ever again as long as I live five days a week if no amount of money could ever get me to be. A, you talk about a prison, a prisoner of a time slot, a prisoner of a microphone, a prisoner of trying to be clever every second without stepping on your your own feet. No, never again. But I was pushed out, and now I am doing podcasts. But I've got to tell you what's going on in the podcast world, Adam. Please do. We live on advertising revenue. Who controls the advertising business? Mm-hmm. Agencies. The same agencies that control everything else. Run by young people, some good, some bad. They don't want conservative voices in podcasting. And so the ads are being pushed to liberals. The ads are being pushed to liberal shows, comedy shows, sports shows, anything but a... So people think that podcasts are wild and free. They're wrong. They're facing the same kind of insidious... Prejudice, there's no better word than was faced in, in, in the publishing world 
and in the radio world. Where this en- eventually goes is, is anyone's guess, but it looks to me like we're, we're moving towards total and absolute censorship of yep. one kind or another. Yep. This, that's that's the idea. That's the end game. So what are we what are we doing? So we are now. Our, so my colleagues and I uh, regard this as a very serious problem. It's 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 uh, because not only the we are vulnerable at every point in the process and to being interfered with, messed with, uh, you know, shut down. So you know, first of all, our authors. Um, are uh, who promote their books on social media are liable to have their channels cut off. Right, right. I have and, to watch myself on Twitter and Facebook like never before. Yeah, it's amazing that you that you're allowed at this point. I, I don't know. Maybe Mark Zuckerberg likes what I have to say. Sometimes I think they actually look at some of this stuff and they figure, yeah, let the old guy alone. You know, he, these he's, guys, I'm confused, Michael. These guys were supposed to be libertarians. That's what everybody always said about, the, about <laughs> Silicon. What is what happened to Silicon Valley? When did it become fascist? A libertarian is a vegetarian without liberal views. I don't really know <laughs> what happened to them. Uh, I, I think they're all waiting for the next shooter drop on them, and, and I don't know where it goes. But I want to go back to you again. You know, I'm calling this podcast, the way I got here, I said, we're going to call it Growing Up Bellow. I think it's a good title, by the way, for your next book. Uh-huh. Thank you. And I've asked you, how do you get a book published in today's hyper-political world? Where does a conservative author get published anymore? But I didn't ask the main question, is you were the son of a, of a Nobel Prize winning novelist. That could work out one of two ways with a boy. The -hmm. boy could either become completely rebellious against the father and hate him or try to emulate him, which obviously you did to a great extent. You didn't resent him. You didn't resent his success. You didn't resent his friends. And you became a very successful and very prominent editor from the biggest for the biggest companies uh, uh, in in America. But um, what was it like being a boy? With a father who wins a Nobel Prize, the Pulitzer Prize, National Medal of the Arts, a father who was friendly with these giants of his time. They, they were in and out of your house, I assume? So I'll tell you very briefly the story. My, so I, I actually did not live with my father. My parents were, my father had five marriages. and Good for uh, him. Uh-huh. And any number, <laughs> Sorry. any number of girlfriends. There's no final tally. Oh, uh, and um, so he and he lived large. He had a he lived a he had a big life. Uh, and I was raised by my mother um, in New York. Uh, and I saw my father when he would come to New York City to, on business. And to you, how and then in the how sorry. How was he to you? So How did he treat you? So my so I just to conclude my so I would spend time with him in the summers, or he would have he had always have a country place, and I would go and visit him there. So I spent a lot of time with him, and so my father was a, um, you know, a man. Of, he really was a man of the nineteenth century. He was born in nineteen fifteen. I sometimes r- remind wow. remind myself before the United States entered World War One. My father may rest in peace was born in 1913 yeah so i could relate to the age yeah and they, these and he he probably like your father was raised in an immigrant jewish uh neighborhood right. but your father c- came from very successful uh intellectuals and i i read this what your mother had said your grandmother i have to find this in this long write-up i i wish i could find it again here it is your father wrote, the retrospective was strong in me because of my parents. Those would be your grandparents. Mm-hmm. They were both full of the notion that they were falling, falling 
They had been prosperous cosmopolitans in St. Petersburg. My mother could never stop talking about the family Dacha, her privilege, privileged life, and how all that was now gone. She was working in the kitchen, cooking, washing, mending. There had been servants in Russia, but you could always transpose from your humiliating condition with the help of a sort of embittered irony. That was your grandmother. So you came from very intellectual parents and grandparents, didn't you? So, you know, I did. Now, I didn't know my grandparents, who both died before I was born, but... um, what my father con- communicated to me, what he, he was very concerned to to con- to communicate to me, the the essence of what of what we who we were as a family, who we were as Jews, uh, what he had learned from his life experience, and so we talked a, a lot. He told me a great deal about life in uh, in the immigrant ghettos of Montreal and Chicago. He wanted me to know, because he said to me many times, look, you live a very privileged life. Mm. Uh, you know, you don't realize, and you, how could you, what sacrifices were made by your, by your ancestors. So you, you have white privilege, for sure. Well, I had, I had immigrant privilege. So did uh, I. Yeah, I have the privilege of having worked since I'm six years old. <laughs> wow. I, I like to change white privilege to... Um, uh, struggle privilege. I had the privilege of being able to struggle for everything well, I have. See, I object to the term privilege entirely Pri- because privilege connotes something that is undeserved. And undeserved. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and and you're right. Fun. It implies that. That's what flies in my face. See, we have advantages. I had advantages uh, which I'm, which, for which I'm grateful, properly grateful, and which I try to pass on to my children um, because that is my obligation as a, as a parent. I'm not, I'm not obliged to, to sacrifice my advantages uh, or to, or to agree, agree that, they're, that they're illegitimate because somehow I didn't personally earn them. That's, that's incorrect. Yeah, but your father was an immigrant. He worked in a bakery. He worked as a coal delivery man. He worked as a bootlegger. Yep. Uh, his mother died when he was 17. Yep. So he didn't have much privilege. And he and, didn't make and, any money. As I, so no, he, and they wanted your father, Saul, to become a rabbi or a concert violinist. Yeah, that's what, that's what they want. That's what Jewish parents wanted in exactly, the 1920s. Exactly, rabbi or concert violinist. Yeah. When I was young, they showed me a violin. I... I swear to God, in the Bronx, in the tenement, you're bringing back memories. Every little Jewish kid who was allegedly smart was either going to be a lawyer or a violinist. That's right. When I was like, they put a violin in my hand. I remember this to this day. You're making me remember something. And I remember I looked at it and they thought I could play it. Figure I should be able to like just immediately play it. I, it looked like something bizarre to me. And I remember the, the elders from Europe just frowned on me like, no, not him. He's not going to learn to play that violin. I was so crestfallen. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I'd never even seen a violin. I didn't know how to play it. I ran the, the, the thing over the thing, and it made a horrible sound, a screeching sound, and that was the end of my career as a concert violinist. Yes, that's true. Although, you know, being a writer at the same time was not, con- in my father's family, was not considered um, the, you know, uh, a proper way to to. Uh, to, to go about, you know, uh, fulfilling your potential in the world. They wanted him to be a businessman or a lawyer oh. like, like his brothers. Um, and he was the black sheep of his family. He was? Yeah. Nobel Prize winner and all later on, he was the black sheep. It, it figures. Well, I'll tell you what, his, his la- his, his, just about his last words on this earth were, I showed them. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> By the way, before we get, again, distracted, I, all the books he wrote, Augie March, Henderson, The Rain King, Seize the Day, Humboldt's Gift, my favorite book was Mr. Samler's Planet. 
which to this day, I lie in bed sometimes and remember the image of him being molested in the in the hallway of an Upper West Side building. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't believe how graphic it was. How did your father ever come up with these ideas? And I'm a man with crazy, imagi- crazy imagination. But I, I don't I, I can't well, ask you how he these, came up with it. A, a lot of the incidents that he that he describes in his novels are, are things that happened to him or that he heard that he heard uh, about from other people. Um, but he would heighten them. He would make them more uh, more dramatic. Um, and, you know, Samler, Mr. Samler's Planet is is, uh, I think, a good choice for you because uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, because, I appreciate it. No, I mean, as a, I understand why you resonate with it because why? it's it's a story of a of a of a Jewish man who survived the Holocaust. He comes to New York and he's confronted with what he considers to be the the decadence and and decay of American civilization, and he's horrified by it and frightened by it. And um, and he's constantly seeing the sort of it's all about the how thin the veneer of civilization is. Ah. Right. And how the how the inner how the bar the barbarism within us is constantly. Well, look what's going on in New York subways now. The tracks and the slashings in the street. Yeah. This is more of Mr. Samless planet, isn't it? Yeah. Every day. That's that's right. You know, and I've lived in New York City since 1969. And, you know, every time there's a blackout in this city that, you know, all hell breaks loose. Um, you know, people are and, you know, and it's something that you have to take seriously. Um, you know, uh, people don't, people, uh, there's a lot of, clearly a lot of resentment and anger, uh, and, you know, uh, resentment built up, uh, in various sectors of our society. And this, these, these passions have to be channeled or released in some way. Uh, we hope not destructively, but, um, but this is the human problem. This is the, this is what we, this is yeah, what but it's face. gotten, it's gotten worse. So, okay, we'll pause again for just a moment before we get back to my discussion with Adam Bellow. Home of Borders, Language, Culture, The Savage Nation. Okay, we're back. Let's continue with this discussion with the distinguished book editor, Adam Bellow, who I must say has not yet published any of my books, hopefully one day. I'm, wa- I'm waiting. I'm the editors, as I often say, Michael, editors are very patient people. By the way, just to insert something, you know, when we first started talking and you got excited by Xenon and some of my other writings and you you had this great plan for me before COVID hit. I was going to be the West Coast editor of a new press. I was going to find all the geniuses out here for you. I was so looking forward to becoming that out here. I hope we can do that one day. We can still do that. You know what I wanted you to do? I, honestly, I could even put it in the podcast I, I, because I have, I would say, a voluminous library of stuff I've written up at one of my houses. I'd love for you to come out here to the Bay Area. I know you said you had relatives here once, didn't you? Yes, I do. I have friends, many friends and relatives in the Bay Area. I pity them all, but I'm... I, <laughs> I'd like to go through some of this stuff. I'd like to show you some early films. Um, but there's other stuff that you may find interesting. But again, getting back to you before we go. So if a person is a young conservative, even an older conservative, and they want to have a book published, what would they do to make this a pragmatic discussion? Well, most um, uh, at, at this point, uh, I, I have to say uh, the the conservative uh, the status of conservative p- books in mainstream publishing is in the, is in decline. Let's say okay. uh, they're saying they're they're saying no to most of it. Uh, they're only interested in 
people who have uh, big platforms, um, whether you know TV or radio, uh, or who have previously published major best-selling books. Anything that they don't think is going to sell at least twenty thousand copies, they'll just say no to. And and I, as as I sometimes comment, ninety-five percent of a job of the editor's job at a big house consists of saying no. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I mean, none of my books have sold less than fifty thousand. My last eight books. So you, so you, so you should be fine. Oh no, I'm not fine. I'm persona non grata. I may as well be living in the Soviet Union. I well, don't exist because I'm not a Fox person. Yep. I'm not what's called a mainstream conservative. I'm kind of really on the perimeter of the conservative. Remember, my if you said to me, Michael, what are you really with all of the talk and all the words you've written? I don't want to make this too much about me, but I can't help it because, I, as my wife said to me, it's not about you. I said, everything's about me. If anyone says anything to me, it is about me. I said that last night. She said something to me, and I said, she said, it's not about you. I said, it is. You just said something to me, and I'm reacting to it as I am. It is about me. That's how I'm reacting. But I would say uh, it is about me because, no, I can't be published. And I would say that uh, it leaves me in a strange place. Almost I'm back where I, where I started. In a, in a strange way, Adam, it makes me happier. Because I feel total freedom to not have to write a political book. I can write crazy stuff like Xenon or, or as I said, The Detective, which I've renamed The Naked Detective, by the way. I like my, that. My binary detective. Adam, is there a future for authors who are somewhat conservative in America going forward? Well, let me say this. You know, I, actually, I consider this to be so... Uh, while it's true that you can basically now forget about be, about being published in mainstream in a, in a mainstream house if you're conservative, just forget about it. And I, and I sometimes say, you know, why would you even want to? Even if they get, even if they offer you money, why would you want to publish in a place where everybody hates you? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Mark, you know? Can you imagine walking into one of those places and have the the young girls turn their back on you and sneer at you? Well, I'm, listen, but believe me, Michael, I've sat in publishing meetings for 30 years where you know p pitching conservative books talking about their how to, how to how to you know how to how to sell them how to how to how to design their jackets uh, and the the level of you know contempt mm. uh, that it was already off the charts now it's just in the stratosphere so just don't it's not don't. it's not go to a smaller house it's not dignified go but to i want to smaller say, yeah, yeah, but i want to say something that's something encouraging this is actually a very exciting time in uh, in conservative media and conservative publishing, mm. uh, because it's been because it's finally been understood that we have to create our own uh, channels for for publishing and distribution mm -hmm. and sales and marketing, and mm -hmm. we we are in the midst. My colleagues and I are in the midst of building that. So people who want to be published um, uh, have their books published should write to me, and my email address is Adam at Bombardier. Dot books dot com bombardierbooks.com is that b-o-m-b-a-r-d-i-e-r -E yeah bombardier adam at bombardierbooks.com i i welcome all submissions interesting we can publish anybody we want to uh we have no fear of mm. retribution and um and for what it's worth we are working on a solution uh, to uh, to uh so that enabling us to of to evade uh censorship uh, by the major social media platforms and delisting by Amazon, which is the big problem because Amazon oh, now, it's awful. now accounts for 90, yeah, you 95 the, percent of the book market. Exactly. All my books are on Amazon. And I'm terrified that one day I'm going to wake up and see them. Some of them delisted from one word or for one word or another. It's coming. So, oh, I know it is. I know it is. So I think I have to create the equivalent of a Nobel committee.
and it will be called the Savage Committee. I'll put a million dollars into the prize and it will be given every year to the greatest conservative book of the year, something like Michael, that. Michael, that's a wonderful idea. You know, the Savage Prize, I think that's great because you have, un- you, you are, you have understood how the left operates. I do. This is how the left creates influence in culture. They create fellowships, prizes, yeah. you know, they give grants. That's yes, all. They, 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 they create prestige. They, this is how you create a market and an audience. We don't do this stuff on the, on the right. We've got to start doing it. I, I do have to speak with you at another time about being your West Coast man in Havana, so to speak, for your your grander vision. Well, Michael, you know that I'm a huge fan of yours. I was so delighted to connect with you a few years a few years ago. I wanted to publish you when I was at St. Martin's Press. Um, and you know what I noticed about what I learned about you that was so inspiring is that you're is that you're su- such a literate and literary person. You're really a you know you have such a varied background, so many uh, such a diversity of interests and so much knowledge. And I was so excited to hear from you that you had a vast archive of unpublished material. And I thought, well, this would be so much fun for me mm. to explore and to, to and to have a kind of to develop for Michael a kind of uh, special publishing program that would allow you to to put out into the world uh, some of this more diverse content that you've that you've written over the years. So I will accept your invitation uh, to come out to, to California and Please. sit with you and go through all of your of your material. I'm sure we can find a, a, a tremendous amount that can be published. We can wear masks in my studio. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if be- you insist. I'm fully vaccinated, by the way. I'm, I'm, you know, everyone asks, I have a neighbor who's a very famous virologist. He retired, made a fortune and he believes in the vaccines and he believes, you know, he really knows virology and he knows my PhDs in epidemiology. So I know he looks down upon me as someone who doesn't really understand virology, but it's not that hard to understand. And I know this about vaccines, which is that there's no vaccine in history I've ever seen that hadn't had at least two, three years of human trials mm-hmm. before being released. So when people say, well, wh- you're an educated man, why are you not getting vaccinated? I say, yeah. I will after the human trial is over. And about one year after hundreds of millions of people are, let's say 100 million people are vaccinated. And I see how many died, how many had side effects, how many people had their immune systems collapse. I then will consider a vaccine. My, my wife is vaccinated. My daughter is vaccinated. My son isn't and I'm not. So eventually I won't be able to see you. I'll be have to carry around a card saying I'm a leper. I have to wear a bell if I won't be allowed in restaurants. I won't be allowed in airplanes. That's the you want to talk about what's coming, Adam. You know, it's going to be much worse than censorship and publishing. That's right. They're using this epidemic as a tool to further humiliate and isolate people in this society. Anyone who stands up to this uh, this uh, this madness. But that's a topic for another time. We are speaking and have to conclude because Adam has more things to do than talk to Michael with Adam Bello. We're talking about growing up Bello. And it's been a good start. Adam, we can do at least one more. Right. One. more. Oh, I, I, first of all, yes, I would love to do that. And uh, anytime, Michael, I'm completely at your disposal. This was when a- are you coming west? Do you know that my my mother is from Montreal? She's Cana- she's Canadian originally. I saw that your father was Canadian American. I think we said this once. I'm sure they all knew each other, and the old pe- people did. Yes, I'm sure, I'm sure that's true. It was a very small world back then. It was a very small world, and unfortunately, the world is gone. It's shattered. Yeah, it's it's like Kristallnacht. I mean, the the, the world I grew up with just doesn't exist. You know, and and the same applies to me. The world that the world that my father, you know, inhabited, that in which I was a a participant, uh, in which 
deeply learned, literate, um, humane people were conducting a high-level conversation mm. uh, about important questions. Uh, that is gone, and as you say, nobody even remembers that it existed, and it's a it's God. it's just tragedy to me. Well, hopefully, the few hundred thousand people who listen to this podcast will appreciate what you and I have been discussing, and uh, we'll do this another day. And uh, hopefully, you'll come out in the West and uh, talk more about important ideas. Annabella, thank you a million for being with us on the Savage Nation podcast. Thank you. It's been and such a pleasure. I, you had a last word. I could see that. I cut you off. Not at all. I'm just going to thank you for having me on. Um, I always enjoy our conversations, and I'm happy that other people will have a chance to enjoy it as much as I have. Of all your father's characters, do I remind you of any of them? Yes, you remind me of Eugene <laughs> Henderson. I knew you were going to say it. Yes. You made me Henderson the Rain King. Yep. 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 Well, the next podcast is already set. We're going to talk about why Michael Savage reminds Adam Bellow of Henderson the Rain King, uh, Eugene Henderson and Henderson the Rain King. I can't wait. My favorite book of his that he's written. Oh, I'm going to have to go get it out. I think I have it up there, up in the he archive. To, he told me once that, that he associated me with that book because I, when he was writing it, I was a little baby crawling around uh, on the floor under the desk while he was writing it. Unbelievable. Adam, such a pleasure speaking with you. Adam Bellow on the Michael Savage Podcast. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed and learned something from it. And I want to remind you of something that I think is important for you to know. We have over 280 Savage Nation podcast episodes available to you absolutely free. I'll say that again. You can go back into this vast library of over 280 episodes and listen to any one of them or several of them at your leisure. So you never have to be without the Savage Nation. Thank you very much for listening.